Welcome to Engineering Misjudgment with me, Shannon. I have a degree in chemical engineering and work as a risk consultant engineer. Eventually, I will tell you more about me, but today is not that day. Today, our topic is the 2010 Texas Tech University chemistry lab explosion. Sorry for missing the last couple of weeks. I got a new job. Technically, my intro is still accurate, so I'm not changing it. It's called consistent branding, okay? I had other programming notes, but I'm not going to announce them because I most likely will be inconsistently posting because lots of things are happening in my life, but good stuff, I think. I don't know yet. We'll report back. Today's topic is interesting, so let's get to it. Before we go into the story today, I want to talk more about what lab procedures and training looks like in an academic setting. I hope that this podcast is reaching those who are not super familiar with taking traditional science and engineering classes, so let's walk through how people are generally trained for a research lab setting at the college level. To start, most training is similar to what you may remember from your high school science labs if you took them protective clothing and gear based on your experiment for the day, and learning how to waft to smell versus just putting your nose straight into a test tube. Now, these things are serious, but in the case of most high school or freshman science courses, the lab directors usually know what could happen, minus wild allergies or crazy circumstances, and they know all the possibilities of what could go wrong. The point of these experiments are to demonstrate concepts so that you learn them, not add new knowledge to the field. That's where academic and research classes or labs are different. In advanced science or engineering lab classes, you might have lab technicians who may know what could happen, but there are more possible outcomes based on your group's procedures and settings. With this, you also have to know more about how to protect yourself by asking questions like what chemical you are working with or what liquids can be mixed with what and what order or the consequences of exposure. For example, you can usually find more about chemicals you may be working with from a material safety data sheet, better known as a MSDS, but you have to review those before starting anything. I actually think now the MSDS are just called SDS, The M part was dropped during my time in college, so I'm kind of showing my age, or at least the age I stopped doing as much intense research because I still call it an MSDS. In research labs, the bar is even higher. Because lots of research is completed by those chasing advanced degrees, you may not know a lot about how things will play out, and that's the point. In another life, I was going to get a PhD and have thought about this a lot, the whole goal for any PhD candidate, or how it was told to me, is not to learn a lot, but to make an original and significant contribution to knowledge. Basically, you need to discover something. In other words, you are giving ultimate contribution to society vibes if you get a PhD. If you're getting a science or engineering PhD, your lab training is even more intense because you play fuck around and find out for about four, five, six plus years. Yes, you have help and guidance, but it is completely possible for you to fully run stuff 
without relevant training to exactly what you were doing. Universities and other federal organizations try to combat incidents with various training certifications, but again, you could be working on stuff that is very specific and not fully known yet. And then on top of that, hierarchies within the lab are like jobs, but can be uniquely toxic because unlike working an industry job, people may be competing to create the next best new things. Or your principal investigator and advisor could be an asshole, or things happen and you don't want to report injuries, or you could be trying to make $30,000 a year stipend and you are doing 60 plus hours a week in the lab with no time to make more money work. All that is to say, I've heard horror stories, but I don't have those stories myself, so I'll wait until I can bring someone on to give us the full tea on grad school in general. My main point of saying all this is lab safety as you get closer and closer to adding new knowledge can get a little shaky. Time for a little bit of background. This incident happened at Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, Texas. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, so I apologize to everyone in Texas. Couple of fast facts about Texas Tech. It's a public university and was founded in 1923. It has 13 colleges and schools with 150 undergraduate degrees, 100 graduate degrees, and 50 doctoral degrees. In fall 2020, 40,322 students were enrolled with 33,369 undergraduates and 7,053 graduate and law students. Overall, it's a very typical research university to me. At the time of the incident, the chemistry department had approximately 140 graduate and postdoctoral researchers, 225 undergraduate students, and 26 faculty and 19 staffers. The campus had about 368 labs and about 118 were a part of the chemistry department at the time. So how did this experiment get to Texas Tech anyway? From the CSV study, in October 2008, Texas Tech entered into a subcontract agreement with Northeastern University to participate in a program titled Awareness and Localization of Explosive-Related Threats, which is shortened to an acronym of ALERT, which was and continues to be funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security which is also known as DHS. According to the ALERT website, their mission is to conduct transformational research, develop technology, and provide educational development to improve effective characterization, detection, and mitigation and response to explosive-related threats facing the country and the world. The lead university partner is Northeastern University, but they have a bunch of strategic partners and other university partners. One interesting partner to me was the University of Puerto Rico, Mayo West. Shout out to all my Ohio State REU friends who went there. Texas Tech isn't listed as a partner, which might be T, but honestly, I think Northeastern had connections to Texas Tech and was like, hey fam, we're busy right now, want some of this government funding for bomb-related research. And that's how you get this experiment at Texas Tech. 
And I would go into heavy detail about DHS, but honestly, it is my least favorite department in the government. Like, horny, lame, boo, tomato, tomato, tomato. I do not like them. We should just get rid of it because even in the scope of bureaucratic inefficiency, DHS has way too much overlap with other departments that came before it. And it was a bad consequence of 9-11. So we just don't need it. The subcontract gave Texas Tech pretty much full control over experimental protocols. So they didn't have to have pre-approval for experimental changes. The main student working on the project, of course, was a five-year graduate student and had worked on the project for about a year before the incident. According to the official CSB study, None of the graduate students' previous work had been with energetics. Thus, when he began the project, he had to learn new techniques and methods. The graduate student did not receive any formal training for working with energetic compounds, but he stated to the CSB that he independently completed a literature review prior to beginning work to familiarize himself with similar energetic compounds. Safety restrictions, such as a 100 milligram limit, on the amount of compound permitted to be synthesized were verbally communicated by the two principal investigators of the research to some students. The CSB study goes on to summarize safety communication issues. Apparently, the graduate students were supposed to to communicate to other lab members, but there was no formal procedure made. And honestly, that seems completely normal to me. I think like any research I did with the postdoctoral students and grad students when they were really in charge, they made sure we had safety meetings and certifications, but they didn't really, I don't remember signing anything outside of like doing the actual training modules and getting the actual paper certificates for that. And I say the grad students and postdocs are in charge because on a creative inquiry project, which is kind of like very entry-level research, where I got my degree, I worked on a project for multiple years, and the principal investigator didn't know I was working on his project until I had him as a professor. He was cool, though. Like, no hate. It's completely plausible that the PIs have no clue what's going on, especially on research where nothing is going to happen, that they can get a publishing credit on soon. Academia, in that way, is, like, really weird. Um, But I understand, like, sometimes the priority seems a little bit questionable from the PIs. The main thing that needed to be communicated was how much energetic material could be synthesized. There was a hard safety limit of 100 milligrams. CSB study says, instead, students indicated to the CSB they believe they should work with, quote, very small amounts on the order of 200 to 300 milligrams. So, What was this energetic? About a month before the incident, new grad student and old grad student began synthesizing nickel hydrazine perchlorate derivative, which is referred to in most of the literature as NHP. I'm not going to take you through a full chemistry breakdown, but this is an engineering podcast and I do have a chemical engineering degree. So here are some fast facts about NHP. The official IUPAC name is nickel hydrazine perchlorate. Uh, NHP is not naturally occurring, but can be made with materials that are readily available. And honestly, that's about all I know. And I'm scared to Google search how to make a bomb from NHP to get you any more information. So 
That's all I got. The students were making batches of NHB as small as 50 milligrams and up to 300 milligrams. That higher range obviously is a problem. The students had concern that led them to want to make bigger batches so that all the tests got the same material. All these tests needed to be run to learn about the compound and the students wanted to make sure they were running the same thing to get accurate results. So to help out this problem, they made 10 grams of the shit. 10 grams of NHP. Now for those of you who do know how much more that is, we can talk about units anyway. A thousand milligrams is one gram. So 10,000 milligrams, which is like 10 times more than the 100 milligram limit. Um, I am an engineer, but I'm not afraid to admit that sometimes I'm bad at simple math. So I'm about to use a calculator uh, for only ones and zeros to verify that it's 100 times. And it's 100 times. So it is 100 times more that they were producing when they produced that 10 gram. And side note, what do y'all use to remember units? Mine that I learned, I guess, early, maybe sixth grade was King Henry died by drinking chocolate milk. And then you like use the little movements in between the letters to figure out how much to multiply to get the unit. I don't know. This was common experience, right? I don't know. Let me know. Send me a DM. <laughs> but now... I'm a modern woman and I use the internet like the rest of us. I don't use the acronym. Okay, so anyway, this is where we were before the incident. Everyone was vibing with bad info and too much of this energetic material around. So let's get to the day of the incident. So it is January 7th, 2010. The students have just made 10 grams of this shit. Still blows my mind. Everything up until this point, though, seems fine. According to the CSB study, based on experience, the two students had discovered that smaller amounts of the compound would not ignite or explode on impact when wet with water or hexane, and they assumed the hazard of larger quantities of NHP would be controlled in a similar manner. Anytime someone has a bad idea, I just sing Bad Idea by my queen, my idol, Ariana Grande in my head. And I literally did that as I was reading this case all over again. Um, Ariana Grande is on the record as a supporter of women in STEM, meaning in my head, she indirectly supports my podcast. And that keeps me motivated. That brings me back to it even when I haven't put out a podcast episode in a while. Because, you know, that I have to think about that and keep going for my queen, Ariana. Obviously, she is a cancer and she loves the moon and space. So it makes sense that she supports women in STEM. I stand. Anyway, back to the incident. There are clumps in this big batch of NHP and the old grad student of five years wanted to smooth it out. So to smooth out the sample of NHP... About five grams of the NHP was moved to a different container. They added hexane and attempted to get out all the clumps. The old grad student was going in on these clumps and he was reported to be wearing goggles for a little while, but took them off because having them on 
was a personal choice for the lab at this time. Old grad student leaves a sample in the container after all the clumps are gone, goes to do something else, comes back, doesn't put his goggles back on, gives the sample one more good stir, and there goes the boom. After the incident, it was found that no formal hazard analysis was completed to see if the water in hexane mitigated the explosion potential for the larger amount of NHP. Chemical and Engineering News Magazine, also known as C-N-E-N, hard for me to say, has a great article that was published summer of 2010 about the incident. Uh, Chemical Engineering News Magazine, I think, is the most popular magazine for news for chemical stuff, and it's published by the American Chemical Society, which is best known as the ACS. It is a type of magazine where I think they publish pretty often because there was always a new edition in my chemical engineering department's like lounge area where students would hang out. So we could read it and kind of look at some of the charts they had in the back that actually did help with some problems we would do in class. This article goes in on old grad student. I'm not going to mention his name or the names of others involved because it isn't really that important. But if you want to know, the magazine gives full first and last names of everyone involved. After the explosion, the article writes, according to an investigation report repaired by Texas EHNS director, the old grad student lost three digits on his left hand, severely lacerated his right hand, perforated his left eye, scratched his right eye, and had superficial cuts to parts of his body that were exposed. The new grad student had no injuries. The lab notebook were a mess and it wasn't clear what exactly the grad students were doing the day of the incident. Here's a real tea. Other research students not directly involved in the project but worked in the lab space said old grad student was messy. I'm just going to read this straight from the magazine article. TTU EHNS investigation interviews with other researchers who worked in the lab indicate that old grad students' lab mates were disturbed by his conduct in the lab prior to the incident. His face was disorganized, items were not labeled, and there had been conflicts over workspace, cleanliness of the lab, and use of chemicals, one researcher told the investigators. Another researcher told EHNS investigators that old grad students started scaling up synthesis in June 2009, first one to three grams, then to five grams. The researcher told old grad student the scale up was inappropriate. Old grad student reportedly responded that things were, quote, just fine. The researcher apparently did not report the scale up to either professor, not over the lab, but in the department or the direct advisor. Old grad student later told investigators that he scaled up synthesis because he was concerned about the batch-to-batch consistency, which was something we talked about earlier in this episode. Oh, and to add some information that I got from this article, the professor not over the lab that I mentioned in the quotes before made comments to the magazine for the article, but the direct advisor didn't provide direct comments for this article. And 
from reading the names, I think they're related. Like, I think they're married based on the names. And so basically the husband commented for the article, but the wife didn't. And that just sounds really messy to me. Sounds sketch. So more from the article. Quote, the instrumentation for some of those tests was in other buildings on campus. Old grad student transported as much as several grams of the compounds at a time in glass vials in a backpack or coat pocket. A researcher who helped the old grad student told EHNS investigators. The old grad student was told that metal container would be better for transport, but he continued to bring them in a glass vial. The researcher said, see, I'm keeping the names out of this because I feel like they are throwing this man into the fire and he did lose some fingers. So it's a lot keeping that in context and they're like still throwing him under the bus. They ended up having to have the bomb squad clean out the lab because of all the mislabeled or unlabeled compounds there, which is insane to me because when I worked in a lab, I can specifically remember labeling and cataloging every bucket. And in the example I'm thinking of that I experienced, all we had was clean sand, dirty sand, and wastewater from different sources. Like we didn't have anything specifically toxic. And we still had a lot of notes. There was even a label maker for people who had bad handwriting. So you could tell what was actually what in all the containers that we had and yes you can have clean and dirty sand i did wash sand yes you can wash sand and that is a story for another day (laughs) old grad student also brought vile materials home because he forgot them in his pockets and the bomb squad had to sweep his home too because they didn't know what materials were there so they had to clean that up This was the first incident of its kind in an academic lab, so a lot of places wrote articles about it. The most clever title for an article about this incident award goes to NASA, who named their article, Don't Mess With Excess. Like, they really went there, like, don't mess with Texas, but, like, don't mess... Anyway, NASA's out out of hand, but great title for article. Standard lab training was implemented at most large public university after this. And for me and my classmates, we didn't really, I don't think we thought anything of it or thought anything was different because this kind of happened right before we entered college. Time for the engineering misjudgment of this episode. And honestly, the CSB or Chemical Safety Board study that they completed for the incident really did my job because the official paper that they had talks about the modern accident causation theory which is the frame of how I look at things every episode. So rather than talking about the misjudgment specifically, today we're going to look at the theory of how scientists and engineers think about fuck-ups. It's very meta. So the theory of accident causations is normally paired with James Reason's Swiss cheese model. And who the fuck is James Reason? And why is his name so perfect? It's like they found a man named Reason and was like, Ayo, Reason for us. There's a YouTube video with James Reason going into a cheese shop and explaining the model with cheese. There's also wine on the table, which is great directing, in my opinion. The video is in the sources if you do want to watch it. Anyway, 
The Swiss cheese model shows the holes or failures in safety layers for any incident and how all the holes line up leading up to tragedy. Looking at the direct lead up to incidents is good to think about in the Swiss cheese model way. It gives you the opportunity to identify holes in larger institutional frameworks. The CSB takes it a step further and even looks into identifying various decision makers that have a potential for improving safety. They use a special tool for it that goes past the Swiss cheese model. Um, it's very fancy, very hard to understand, but they do include their methods in the study. Um, and the CSB comes for everybody. They come for the university, the grant agency. They come for lab practices generally and the researchers at all levels when they come to their, when they talk about their criticisms of how this incident happened. Here are the gaps that the CSB found. The physical hazards of energetic materials research work were not effectively assessed and controlled at Texas Tech. Texas Tech's laboratory safety management program was modeled after OSHA's occupational exposure to hazardous chemicals and laboratory standard, yet the standard was created not to address physical hazards of chemicals, but rather health hazards as a result of chemical exposures. They also had comprehensive hazard evaluation guidance for research laboratories that just didn't exist. Previous Texas Tech laboratory incidents with preventative lessons were not always documented, tracked, and formally communicated at the university. The research granting agency, DHS, prescribed no safety provisions specific to the research work being conducted at Texas Tech at the time of the incident, missing an opportunity for safety influence, and last but not least, Safety accountability and oversight by the principal investigators, the department, and the university administration at Texas Tech were insufficient. Realistically, you would use the Swiss cheese model to study what you're doing and then use that same thinking during a hazard analysis, but I've honestly only seen the Swiss cheese model used to discuss events that have already happened. The Chemical Safety Board goes into heavy detail for all the findings. I'm not going to go into each, but basically they put all the organizational charts from the university, from DHS, from OSHA, and label who fucked up. It's very iconic. It's amazing. Go look at the study. Of course, it'll be in the, in the sources. The CSB made formal recommendations based on their findings to OSHA the American Chemical Society, and Texas Tech directly. There were four total recommendations and all were closed, meaning completed as of October 2011. So it only took them a year to have everything addressed, which is really great. Um, and I think really shows that there are some systems in place that do actually work. Well, that's all I got. I purely did this one because it's such a popular example for intro safety classes. So many of you may have heard this one before, but it's always great to review. I also think I am missing the lab a little bit more during this time and realizing I most likely will never work in a lab again because of decisions I've made for my life. A lot of those decisions that I made within the last six months and Casey Musgrave said it best. I'm happy and sad at the same time about that. 
I also would like to say my search history after this episode might get me on some watch lists, but the government has to be too busy right now to care about this. I want to talk more about nuclear because of the current events and to help everyone understand why we, for better or worse, have to let people with nukes have a say. I want to do that episode soon, but no promises on when I will get that out. Again, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ENG underscore misjudgment for photos and send a DM if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The the podcast also has a buy me a coffee page. I think I have that on my Twitter and Instagram, but if you search engineering misjudgment on buy me a coffee, you should be able to find it. So buy me a coffee if you want to. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Dumb Spiro Sparrow. Bye.